The power is once that question is answered definitively once for all, like when were you saved 2,000 years ago on a cross? Um, <laughs> you know, well, then you have the rest of your life free and open to actually deal with the things that are killing you, sin, death, and the devil. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. We are recording this episode on Tuesday, February 20th, 2024. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch on the phone of St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. How are you guys doing? Very good. Thank you. Yeah, great, Nick. Thanks. Uh, any Lenten disciplines to share, you guys? What are you giving up? What are you taking on? Anything? I don't know. I was if listening to Matt's you. podcast. I think Matt's supposed to tell us, as far okay. as I can tell from your family dynamic, Matt's supposed to tell us what we're supposed to give up. Is that right, Matt? Is that, I picked that up from right. the motivation. <laughs> That's right. We've offered that to our congregation, too. If, you, if anyone wants to know what to give up, we will, we'll tell you what, oh, nice. <laughs> what to give up. No, I mean, if we told you what we're giving up, that we'd lose all of our our merit points, wouldn't we? If we if we tell you the discipline we're doing, then well, I guess we're gonna have to we're gonna have to have that conversation. That's that's right. the whole Ash Wednesday conversation, right? Like, aren't we giving up the points we get by doing the thing we're not supposed to be doing? Is that like not telling someone about your birthday wish? That's, yeah, that's sort of the vibe I'm, the vibe I'm getting here. <laughs> it's been a long time since I have given up anything for Lent. I think since I caught myself bragging to a friend about giving up chocolate for Lent in the midst of eating an Oreo McFlurry, I think that was a real low point for me. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I mean, I, uh, I don't, we've made it, I've tried to emphasize in like everything I've written about Lent to try and give up a sin. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> And then keep giving it up, right? Right, right, right. Not just for uh, you can cheat on the Sundays, you know, it's, it's your feast day. But, uh, but uh, so I haven't given up a food thing in a long time. It is funny. Like, I mean, if you do, if you really do have a besetting sin that you just choose to wait until Lent to give up, like, we might need to talk, you know, like, just let that run ravage over me for the, for the rest of the nine months of the year, and then I'm going to really buckle down for three. I mean, Make yeah. Well, this really leads us very well, actually, into our first topic today, the strange overlap between Protestantism and Lent. Scott Aniel, executive vice president and editor-in-chief of G3 Ministries, recently tweeted with regret that, quote, it appears that it is now cool for evangelicals to observe Lent. Now, he basically suggests that since Lenten practices can be misconstrued to earn us merit and favor with God, as though they earn us merit and favor with God, they should be rejected as potential obstacles to the truth that Christ sufficiently suffered on our behalf. No more suffering on our part is needed. Now, certainly this is a conversation that gets restarted every Ash Wednesday when we disfigure our faces in seeming contradiction to Jesus' direct command in Matthew 6. So, guys, how do you reconcile Lenten observance with your Protestant evangelicals? I mean, Anglicans have always celebrated Lent, or celebrated, observed Lent, along with Lutherans. So, I, I read the, I read his his post, and I thought that's that's just not true. It's weird because it's like, um, you know, sometimes with Roman Catholic apologists, you you get this sense that the only Protestants there are are rabid non denominational mega churches 
there's no there's no classical Protestantism. And so they then they do that to kind of cast uh, evangelicals and or Protestants in a bad light. And then but this was weird because it seemed like Scott Anielhan, who I know knows better, was kind of doing the same thing in reverse. Like if if you if you celebrate Lent, you must you know that, that's what Catholics do, and you must be doing it in a way that's totally contrary to the Reformation. <laughs> As if there was no such thing as Lutherans and and Anglicans. Right. <laughs> do you think it has something to do with like the cafeteria sort of um, well, well, the the way that a lot of kind of evangelical churches are like taking and choosing various aspects of the tradition we would call it um, and sort of incorporating that into their worship? And uh, you know, I'm not necessarily against that, but I mean, maybe there was a reaction to to the fact that you know, like more kind of mainstream evangelical type churches or self-consciously Protestant churches who were not liturgical or traditional like ours, nevertheless, are incorporating, you know, like aspects of the tradition, like the creeds or, you know, maybe candles or, um, or well, maybe Lenten practices. I don't know. There, there seemed to be something more going on there than just kind of, you know, a hot take on, I don't know, Protestant churches. But I'm, maybe I'm just trying to... No, I think you're right. I think it's been defending a tradition, defending some kind of traditional Baptistic practice. I think he's Baptist. I'm not sure, quite sure about his, his denominational affiliation, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's pretty sure it's Baptist, but yeah, there was definitely some kind of a defensiveness there. We got to, we got to keep the, keep all the, all the people in the pews doing the same thing they've been doing and not, not experiment with this papistry that's going on um, during that. But there is this like, okay, so getting to your question then, Nick, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's quite important that our Ash Wednesday liturgy, the readings assigned, include Math, that Matthew six text. Right. right? It's it's not like we're avoiding it. It's not like we're saying uh, Sorry. we're just gonna we're just gonna make this big show <laughs> and pretend that's not in the scriptures. That's front and center. So if you're preaching on on Ash Wednesday, you've got to deal with that, especially if your church practices the imposition imposition of ashes, which is the outward visible sign that everyone sees, and that and that for some reason. I know I, I can't figure it out, but for some reason, every non-Anglican, non-Lutheran, every person that doesn't practice the imposition of ashes just assumes this thing is about showing off how how That's righteous right. and holy you are. Well, they read in the newspaper about how some Episcopal priest is at the subway station with ashes to go. And I could see rolling your eyes at that, because if you don't preach the Ash Wednesday sermon, it's one of the most easily misunderstandable things like Lenten practices. I can see I roll. I I would I would now roll my eyes at myself for many years of Lenten practices where I probably in some sense, I probably wouldn't have admitted this out loud. But in some sense, I was like, yes, you know, Jesus suffered for me. And in return to even the scales, I'm going to give up Japanese food. You know, like these, <laughs> these things are so ridiculous that they deserve an eye roll, but they also deserve a sermon. Yeah. 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 And that's, and that's, I mean, the whole, the, the entire point of the outward sign of the ash is not, you know, is not to say, look at me. I went to church this today. It's, it's a holy day of obligation. I went, look at my, they, they punched my ticket. Look at my head. Um, it's, it's to say, that the you know the ashes have always represent sorrow, yeah, yeah, sorrow, penitence, a, a sense of humbling yourself because of your deep sinfulness. They also mark you out as as one who who is going to die um, because we're we're a fallen people of a fallen race. 
Um, and then the sign of the cross, of course, is points to the remedy for both those things, the, the, for both death and sin. And that's uh, and that's the cross. So so it's it, it's the it's the anti anti virtue signal. It's it, it's actually signaling I have no virtue <laughs> and I'm condemned okay. to die. But Jesus died for me. That's all you're saying. And, and hopefully I mean, I've had I've had good conversations with people who've who've seen ashes on my head. I remember one time this didn't happen this year. It happened a couple of years back. But someone saying, "Hey, I've always seen people with it, with that on their head. I'm seeing a lot of people with that on their head today. What's this about?" And I got to explain just what I, what I just said. Yeah, that's that's my point. I mean, you know, these things are culturally bound to a certain degree or time sensitive. And the idea that there are so many people out there that are that are wantonly, brazenly, um, you know, proclaiming their allegiance to the Lord through these <laughs> this um, dispensable practice of ash imposition is just laughable. I mean, like, so what? I mean, there's a part of me like, maybe, maybe we should, as a collective Christian body, just decide that we're going to all do it maybe more than once a year and, and just see who's out there, you know, just for the sake of, like, who actually would, would identify as a Christian in this way. Um, you know, I might have more in common with you than, than I, than, you know, than I first expected. Um, and I think that's just kind of what's laughable about it too. You know, that it's not like, it's not like every third person you saw on Ash Wednesday even knew what it was, much less participated in it. And so it seems like, it seems like misdirected anger, if not just a hot take for, for some tweet responses. It does seem that along these lines, those, and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but some of those G3 guys and sort of that that Twitterati area seems to have an extra concern for Christians who think or people who think they're Christians, but who really aren't. And they want to be very clear to warn people just because you've, quote, said the sinner's prayer. I've been seeing this on Twitter a lot recently around the sinner's prayer. Like, don't think just because you said the sinner's prayer that you're a Christian. And in the same vein, don't think that just because you went to church on Ash Wednesday and you got ashes that you're saved. So I think that there's a certain concern for the person who thinks he's saved but isn't. And that's sort of the opposite of the J.C. Ryle, oh, I forget the term now, but his 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 assumption that in worship you have to worship and order Christian worship as though the congregation is saved rather than the opposite. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right about that. It's a I forgot the phrase too. Just as you were speaking. charitable assumption, I think that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, charitable assumption, and what you're noticing uh, plays really into this idea of we've talked about it many times before. But the the way you really know you're a Christian is by the fruit that you're bearing, and by the you know, are are you are you truly walking the walk? Um, are you becoming more holy as as time goes on? And then that, then you can know that you're a Christian. You can't tell by the outward works of going to church and by the outward work of observing Lent or fasting or whatever, but you can tell by the outward work of uh, these other fruit bearing exercises that you do. Um, and, and that gets you, I, and that, and, I mean, I think that, that way of looking at and assessing, assessing your, your, or try to gain assurance for your being in Christ is just as deadly as the Roman Catholic. Yeah. Uh, Check works that they do going to the on the pilgrimages. Well, it's just a subjective too, because I mean, who are you asking? Like, I mean, are you asking Liza, and which month are you going to ask her? You know, I mean, like, you know, what 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 year are you pointing to? Are you know, going to ask your your good friends? Are you going to look at your you know the the pastor and what's his you know where's his criteria? And I think obviously there are, like Paul says, evidently works of the flesh, 
and fruit of the spirit. And so, you know, in general, um, you know, and, and even Paul says the words of the flesh are obvious, you know, so if you are like professing Christian and you are embroiled in, you know, the, the relative list of the works of the flesh, well then, you know, you might have, you might have some, well, you don't might, you have some very clear criteria by which you can judge yourself, but, but you're exactly right, man. Like this sort of subjective sense or, I mean, really it comes down to a feeling, you know, I feel more connected. I feel more, you know, spiritual or holy. And it's like, well, I need, I would like something more concrete than that. You know, I would like something more definite than, than the um, exigencies of my, uh, you know, mercurial emotions, you know? And so I, um, yeah, I mean, I'm with you entirely. I think that there, there, there's a flip side of an equally um, subjective and ultimately um, unstable foundation. And, you know, we, and I, going back to the, the charitable assumption thing, you know, it's always great to be able to say to people who are really worried about their own place in, in the kingdom, whether they're in or not, um, it's always great to say, well, do you, do you, do you trust in Jesus? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, then, they, they, then you, have, you have objective promises that they're, that are there. That's and right. Let's also, begin there. Let's begin there. Yeah, you also have these. You also have these outward signs, these tokens that he's given you. The, your, your, the water of your baptism and, the, and and communion that are supposed to that are, that are outward signs that are, what promises are attached to them. So, you receive those in faith and trust and trust in what Jesus said, and that's that, that's that. You don't don't the, the less introspection you do uh, with regard to assurance of salvation, the better you're gonna you're gonna be. Um, you're just going to, you're building, you're, 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 you're digging yourself into a hole of, of personal torment and, 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 That's right. yeah. Well, because the question itself is so terrifying that you can't then really get past it. Like if you're a question, if you're genuinely moved by the spirit, your heart's been circumcised, as Paul would say, and you are worried about eternal damnation and you <laughs> can't have any ultimate assurance. Well, then you can't get past that question. You can't. I mean, that's, there's a lot of money and there's a lot of there's a lot of manipulative power in letting that question be unanswered, which was the whole point yeah. of the Reformation, really. Yeah. Um, and then because the power is once that question is answered definitively, once for all, like when were you saved 2000 years ago on a cross? Um, <laughs> you know, well, then you have the rest of your life free and open to actually deal with, with the things that are killing you, sin, death and the devil. And. And, you know, if I hadn't seen it, if I hadn't experienced it, if I hadn't preached and watched the fruit, I wouldn't believe it. But it's just, it's the most obvious change in the way of preaching and assuring people that, um, well, never going back, just never going back. So how should a Christian approach Lent? <laughs> well, I mean, I think, uh, I think first, the first step would be to become an Angl- Anglican. If you're not Anglican, you become happen. And <laughs> Um, well, I mean, I do, I do, I, 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 I've made a personal practice of this and I think everyone should, every Christian should. I mean, I, I, I do think it's time. Look, I know we should all be doing this all year long, but how, but we don't. Okay. But it's nice to have a season of the year where we can say, all right, let's do, let's see, is there something that I'm enslaved to right now that I'm just not able to stop? I, I, I can't get, I haven't been able to get my discipline myself, uh, to get this thing dealt with and and that's the thing you you i would say that's the thing that you work on on in, in Lent, not in order to be justified but because you are justified um and give give that to the lord ask for his help and, and mercy and grace confess it every day put some things in your life to kind of act as safeguards around it and by hopefully i mean 
by God's grace, by the end of Lent, you might have he might have given you total victory over the thing, and you can and then that's one more that's one more chain broken in your life. So I think that's the best way to practice Lent. I mean, it's I mean, uh, and of course that would necessarily involve taking extra care to avail yourself of the means of grace. So you're you're going to church on Sundays. You're you're going to Bible study. You're you're saying your prayers. You're going. You're you're and fellowshipping with the saints all the things that god promises to to use to strengthen you that's what you're uh you you, you need those those are like your medicine if you don't get those you're, you're gonna you, this your all your efforts are gonna are gonna dry up because you you have these great avenues by which god has promised to, to give you strength and help and you're ignoring them don't do that it's like going through the desert um during the exodus but and god's pouring water out of a rock and you refuse to take it take the water drink the water take the bread <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I preached about that. I agree with that entirely. I preached about this on Ash Wednesday and said, you know, that we have to be clear that Lent, um, Ash Wednesday and Lent, for that matter, are traditions of the church. And obviously, we have biblical precedent and historical precedent to see how traditions can be raised to the level of um, sort of obligatory law or, or places they shouldn't be. But as long as we can observe them, the proper perspective, well, then we can actually learn something from the wisdom of our forefathers and foremothers, for lack of a better word, that there's, there's seasons, there are times of, you know, different emphases, and you can, you can embrace those, and you can, you can celebrate uh, to a certain degree those, as long as um, you're careful, and you have a, you know, good preacher, a good teacher who's, who's helping you uh, keep them in the proper perspective, and I don't see it, in fact, not only do I not see anything wrong with it, I'm joyfully and actively participating in it, both in my own life and the life of my family and church. And so when I read that tweet by Scott Aniel, I just thought, I was like, I don't know who he's upset with, but if it's me, then so be it. (laughs) I also think it's instructive to remember that Lent is not some disconnected 40 days at some random time in the year. It's the 40 days as we prepare for Christ's passion and resurrection. And so as churches that preach law and gospel every Sunday we're not especially morose in Lent. We're not more aware of our sins than we ever are. We're not like extra depressed and refusing to sing songs except in a minor key. We do refrain from saying alleluia, although I'm sure we all get some half alleluias out here and there throughout Lent. But the reason is because of Easter. It's to throw all the more glory and light on the alleluias that we say on Easter morning, not to be depressed now, but to remember how joyful we're going to be when we see that the tomb is empty and Christ is risen. Amen. And, and another point on this, not to just keep hitting the same point in different ways, but as if the problem that the particularly American church, well, I would just say the church in the West has is like an over emphasis on self-sacrifice and fasting and pietistic devotion. I mean, as if that's what we're really marked by. So I mean, give me a break. Like, I mean, I, look, I'm I'm implicating myself in that too. I mean, I, I, you know, I would say that that I've slowly become more penitential and and you know, uh, sort of devotional during Lent, and it's taken years, you know. But it certainly isn't an, an idol that I'm I'm afraid that's going to overtake my understanding of the gospel anytime soon. So, you know, again, I I mean, I don't have a lot of time for this point. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know too many ascetes um, in our day who are who are sitting on top of their pillars. That's right. Wearing one of those leg iron things, you know, that they tighten every time they uh <laughs> right. yeah, 
for a while at least. So taking a hard left turn into our second topic of the day, we thought we'd talk a little bit about the Alabama Supreme Court, which has ruled just last week that frozen embryos created via IVF are children, legally speaking, and afforded them the protections as such under the law. The judges even invoked the Imago Dei in their decision. Uh, this pretty clearly has implications for the broader conversation regarding preborn children in the womb, though abortion is already illegal in Alabama. I loved how The Guardian wrote it, as only a paper like that can, saying this decision, quote, could increase criminalization of expectant people, end quote. <laughs> so guys, as we've discussed before, IVF has sometimes been something that Christians haven't thought about or would rather not think about. Is this Alabama decision in line with a Christian ethic? Oh, man, it's like it, yeah, it, it, it in the law. I mean, it's just, this is a, the, the wording of the um, of the decision. Uh, if you haven't read it, you should um, you should go read it. But they do. They appeal not only to the science of you know when life begins, but also but also and most importantly for our sakes, the fear of a holy God. <laughs> <laughs> and and his wrath at the destruction of, of human life um, for no cause. And the, and the great thing about it, too, is this was a decision handed down after Roe v. Wade. So that's the final word in Alabama. It can't, it can't, it's not going to be at least from the judicial uh, branch. It can't be appealed. It can't be. It can't, you can't send it to the Supreme Court. Uh, it doesn't matter because, because now Roe v. Wade is gone. So Alabama has just set its own course in defining or I guess recognizing when life begins in a court and recognizing in accordance with biblical principles. So, so thank, thanks be to God. What a, what a great group of judges. I think there's only, I think, I, I think I read there's one dissenting judge, but one. Yeah. Okay. But all the rest were, were unanimous in, in the decision. And I hope other States take heed, especially the ones who've already, that have already outlawed abortion. This would be a great second step to that. Um, and, take heed not only of the, of the set that, that they that they take, but the reasoning behind it. I don't want to bring up the, na the Christian nationalism conversation, but, <laughs> but, but this is, it reads, it reads like you might expect something in a Christian, an actual Christian nation to read. <laughs> right. So, yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's, I mean, certainly in line with what we have in our ACNA ordination vows, um, you know, and what the church stands behind. But I think, you know, beyond that, what I'm, what I'm grateful for, and we've talked about this before, I mean, my own particular relationship to IVF and frozen embryos and all the things, um, you know, is that the conversation is happening now, you know, the, the sort of the shock and horror of the people who think it's just a clump of cells are starting to get the sense that like, well, maybe you should think a little deeper about that. And the people who maybe haven't thought at all about it, who are nevertheless sympathetic to, you know, pro-life cause or having to, to be confronted with, with something that we, you know, were confronted with by necessity, but also were kind of shocked that so few people had actually considered before finding themselves in a position where they had, you know, multiple extra embryos frozen and not knowing what to do with them. And on top of that, believing rightly that they were just little tiny, small children. And so there's a heartbreak there that, you know, is something that, that uh, well, the embryo adoption world is trying to rectify but nevertheless you know the fact that most doctors i mean we didn't find one doctor that volunteered to us that by the way what you're doing is creating life they just said call them embryos um and you know if you didn't have the conviction like the alabama supreme court that these were actual little babies well then 
you might find yourself with 10, 15, 20 in some cases, little frozen children and not knowing what to do with them and not having been counseled on the front end that this is what you're doing. And now, at the very least in Alabama, if not hopefully by extension other like-minded states and then maybe the country eventually, there'll at least be that conversation that before you create these, um, know what you're doing and know what the, the consequences are because we cannot let them just die because they're little, little tiny babies. Yeah, say a prayer for all of the employees who work in Alabama at these cryogenic fertility labs and storage facilities, because some of them know, I'm sure, and have always known, but some of them probably just woke up this morning and went to work in a completely different situation where they're now caregivers to hundreds and hundreds of lives in a way that they did not realize before. And it's good for them to realize that. That is the truth. But um, it's a whole, there's going to be this whole industry is going to have to completely reevaluate how they work, what they do, how they care for and these then, these little people. When pray for the couples, I mean, like we were on this list, you know, our two um, twin boys were frozen embryos that we adopted. There's a waiting list for that. And the, the, the only reason why, well, the parents have the choice of either putting them up for adoption or letting them die. And like, that's the real that's the real conundrum because, you know, this as small as they are, you still can't get away from the reality, particularly if you had another a, a number of children come from um, the procedure already that you can't help but look yeah. at those children and know that you had you had others that you just simply let let die and pray for that. There would be a conviction that these type of conversations would inspire them at the very least to put them up for adoption as yeah. horrific as that might seem at the time. It's definitely a long term. It's better in the long term for them. For all the reasons. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think the case, the thing that sparked this particular case was uh, someone destroying accidentally. Several... But yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah somebody wandered so into the storage facility and accidentally broke a few vials, destroying the embryo. Right, and then the question of what what actually was destroyed um, mm. came up: is this is this just are these just cells or what are they? And um, I would have loved, I mean, now that the decision's out, I kind of want to go back and I'm not even sure if it's recorded anywhere, but listen to the arguments that were made on both sides to see how the, the right side argued it. I'm sure that'd be of interest for people who are hoping to take this kind of thing to other states. Okay, we have another mailbag question that we can turn to now. This is from Judy, and she's asking about a question, something she is confused about from our episode with Dr. Rosaria Butterfield. She says, it sounded like... She was saying that having same-sex attraction in and of itself is sinful. I guess that I had believed the opposite, that if one doesn't act on a temptation to sin, doesn't stoke the desire, prays for the Lord to take it away, etc., it's not actually sin. Can you help me understand this better? So we've talked about concupiscence before, but how would you guys go about answering Judy's question? Right. So um, there are several categories of sin. There's the... Things that you do or think or desire to do, that you 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 a lust and you act on the lust in some way. But then there's also where where does that come from? Like let's where, where does that disposition to do evil? Where does that arise from? And that that of course Jesus tells us that that's the origin of those things is is the human heart. And and why is the human heart that way? Well, because uh, because we're all participants in in the sin of Adam. Uh, I know you weren't alive back then. Um, I, I wasn't were, either. Yeah. 
Yeah, Matt. Well, I, that's right. Yeah. But but <laughs> Adam, uh, but God chose Adam to represent the entirety of the human race, and He chose rightly. <laughs> so so uh, you, there's no good no good looking back at Adam and saying, "Well, if I were there, I would have done differently." <laughs> no, you no, you, no, you wouldn't have. Um, in fact, you didn't. You were you were participate you participated in the act. So for that reason, the, the presence in our own souls of sinful dispositions, even if we don't act on them, is itself condemnatory. It, it, it points to our own, our own culpability in, in Adam's rebellion. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. I think a point of contention, not a contention, clarification here, and you're, you're really setting it up perfectly, is the, the misunderstanding people have between the temptations of Jesus without a sinful nature yeah. uh, versus the temptations that we have with a sinful nature. Because... You know, people will point to the fact that he was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin and misunderstand that to mean that he was he was tempted in the same way that we are, meaning our sinful natures were being tempted, which is a sin. I mean, that's it's out of the heart, as you saw it comes. And so I think it's a really it's, it's a it's a very poignant place to to make that distinction, because Jesus could be both tempted and sinless in a way that we couldn't like we were tempted because of sin in a way that he wasn't. And so it doesn't mean that the um, temptations were any less you know, powerful. In fact, you know, the theologians have often argued that his temptations were even much more high, greater magnitude precisely because he wasn't given over to a predisposition for sin in the first place. But nevertheless, I think that's, that's the point where I've, you know, we've had this conversation online and on this podcast for, I feel like years now, but this seems to be a point where at least could be somewhat clarifying. Jesus could be tempted, but because he wasn't, sinful by nature, that is not a sin. We were tempted because we're sinful by nature, and that is mm-hmm. um, by default a sin, and that's, that's, that's the distinction right there. I found that a sort of simple rubric for explaining this is the distinction between inside and outside, that Jesus was tempted by things outside of himself and was therefore, because he did not have a sin nature, able to resist them. We are tempted by things outside of us and inside of us. And it's the inside things that are sins by their definition, whether or not, whatever we do with them. Right. There's an inside hook. There's a, mm-hmm. the only, and the only reason uh, the stealing the candy off the shelf in the store is something that I really want to do is because I have inside me desire to, uh, to take what doesn't belong to me. So yeah, there's this, there's a, That's right. the inside, darkest. That's right. 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 <laughs> so, so, but it's really, it's really insidious. It's really, it's really important. We get this, this, these kinds of things clear. I'm not sure if you guys read, uh, an article in American reformer called, uh, the, the title was homosexuality disorder, desires and actions. It was by Ben Dunstan or Dunson, but he was pointing out that, uh, in, within the revoice movement, there's been a lot of work done on, on Jesus's internal desire to do evil. <laughs> and and how it he his resistance of that internal desire to disobey God is also where they can find their own sexual desires not in, inherently evil. Do so, they source so for, that in Hestemony or something? Yes. So the, so that, that's Hestemony is the point. So Jesus, the the argument is, so Jesus really didn't want to go to the cross, which is mm-hmm. true. Okay. Um, and so what that means is, they say, is he didn't want to obey the father, which is right. 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 Literally the opposite of what he says. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. So right. because he didn't obey the, he, he wanted to disobey the father, but yet he just reined himself in and didn't disobey the father that uh, and yet he's still the quote unquote sinless son of God. That means that we can have these desires and, and even know ourselves to, to love 
uh, and want to be with other men, even though we know it's sin. But there, we're, in that, we're just like Jesus, and we haven't, we don't have to confess that inner disposition mm-hmm. as sin. And then what that, what that is, you're implicating Jesus in a kind of blasphemy in order to justify not confessing the inner disposition to be with other people of the same sex, which is which is a really horrible move. Well, why uh, don't you real, real quick before we move away from that, why don't you give us an accurate interpretation of why it is not that when Jesus says, if there is another way, let that happen. But what is he, why, why isn't he being tempted to be disobedient there? It's, well, I think he's being tempted from the outside to be disobedient, but right. he, but he, um, but he's the desire um, not to be the subject of divine wrath and not to bear sin and not to be killed. That's not a bad desire in itself, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's good. I mean, I, I don't want to die either. I mean, it's, it's, nobody, it's a good desire not to want to die because that's how God made us, right? We, we shouldn't, death shouldn't even be here. But then that doesn't translate into a desire to disobey the Father. Yeah. That he, Jesus wanted not to go to the cross, but he wanted more than that to do whatever the Father would have him do. And so when he asked, the, when he asked his Father if it were possible for there to be another way, and the Lord said no, Jesus, because his perfectly sinless desire to always obey the Father was stronger than any other desire that he had, of course, well, then the, that he's going to he's going to go to the cross. Um, so there was never in his heart a desire to disobey the Father, never in his heart a desire to do anything other than what the Father uh, wanted him to do. That's right. And that's the markedly different temptation than the ones that we are subjected to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. And just for the record, if I don't believe that this listener is an Anglican, but for those of you listeners who are Anglican, this is addressed directly in our 39 articles, in Article 9 of Original or Birth Sin, where it says that, among other things, that man is very far gone from original righteousness and is of his own nature inclined to evil, so that the flesh lusteth always contrary to the spirit. And then it says that this infection remains, yea, in them that are regenerated, and then finally ends with that although there is no condemnation for them that believe and are baptized, that concupiscence, that remaining sin nature and lust, hath of itself the nature of sin. That's right. Preach it. <laughs> I'm just reading. You can also put, well, you can also put, it's going in full circle, that Article 20 addresses the freedom we have to observe a holy and penitential Lent, Lent season, as long as we don't elevate it to something anti-scriptural or contrary to God's word written. So go ahead and put that in your uh, pro-Anglican arsenal right there, too. Well, that's going to be our time for today. If you'd like to help send Stand Firm to Provincial Assembly in June, we're once again going to have a link on the show's post page on StandFirmInFaith.com, or you can visit the website of my church, Grace Anglican in Louisville, GraceAnglicanLOU.com. Click on Give, and then in the online giving module, select Send Stand Firm to Provincial Assembly from the drop-down menu. Thank you so much to those who have already donated. We are well on our way to Latrobe. Thank you for listening to Stand Firm this week. If you want to keep the conversation going, please be in touch. Rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. 
Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Oh, 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 oh,